Let's take up our Bibles at this time and turn to the Gospel according to Luke. The account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, last time in his humiliation before he rises from the dead on the next Sunday. Luke 19 and verse 28, we'll begin reading and through verse 44. You could find this account of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in all of the Gospels, Matthew and Mark and John as well. But we read from here, we'll be referring to the other passages as well. Hear the word of God. When he had said this, when Jesus had said this, spoken of the coming judgment upon the unfaithful servants, the Jews, when he'd said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. It came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's as far as we'll read. God bless us as we've read the well-known account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem the beginning of his Passion Week. Noteworthy is the fact when Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem, he was bent on going to Jerusalem. Verse 28 reminds us that when he had spoken of certain things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Not far before this, in Luke chapter 9, we read in verse 51 and 53 that Jesus had the same resolution then. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem 
His face was set for the journey to Jerusalem, set journeying to die and to go to hell. Striking the steadfastness of the Savior for these reasons. One, Jesus knew he would be rejected. He's just spoken of that in the context of his going up to Jerusalem. He knew he would be rejected. Two, though it was determined of him by God that he should die, he himself with purely human, really human, sinless desire, determined himself to go. He was resolute. He was driven in obedience to go to Jerusalem to do Father's will for the salvation of his people. Another striking thing is that Jesus would enter Jerusalem at this time and for the first time let it be known that he was Messiah. He will go, and he will go at this time, and he will go in this way on a donkey precisely to make it known to the people that he is Messiah. Whatever they think of him, he, on his part, will clearly reveal by his actions and words that he is the Savior of the Jews, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Never before had Jesus wanted his true identity to be so clearly and publicly known. But now is the time, this Palm Sunday, as we call it, the day the Lord has made to teach of himself to teach sinners what sort of sinners they are and that he's come to save, we learn lessons here of the truth of God, the truth of his grace. In fact, these are reasons, these lessons here, for our eternal Palm Sunday praise. I believe we will be praising God for Palm Sunday leading to Good Friday and the next Sunday is Resurrection there will be eternal praise before the angels and before God and the Lamb in heaven for Palm Sunday. Besides that, there will be an eternal pondering of these things that are too high and too deep and too broad for us. And then there will be an eternally marveling people in heaven, marveling that this Palm Sunday leading to the cross as it does, is for our salvation and peace. So I remind you, Jesus went on ahead, resolute, determined to go into Jerusalem that last week of his life on earth. He went on ahead. Shall we not follow him? All the way to the cross and the empty tomb, let us follow him. So, want to consider Palm Sunday praise and that it's fitting, and then what I would call paradoxes and that they are eternal ones. They're not for us ever really to figure out. And then finally, Palm Sunday praise for our peace. For Jesus reminds the Jews in Jerusalem that did not know him and that it was their day that they will be judged because they did not know the things that make for their peace. Verse 42. Well, there's this fitting praise, and I wonder if we can really get our minds around that. 
We need really all of the passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John to put, put it all together, but I'm not sure if we can really have but an approximation of what was going on at that time in the Palm Sunday praise. They were praising Jesus, and as our text says, verse 38, because they saw him as the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were right, and it was so fitting that Jesus would be gotten this title, would be given this title and this praise because he is the king. They were in connection with reality, at least that far. They were praising him as king, and we know him in light of the whole Bible to be God who is king. He is displayed in all of his majesty in the New Testament, though it be in humble form, as God with us. That's Jesus, the God of the universe. Do you realize that, children? The God of the universe. Do we realize that, adults? The God of the universe is is located in a a tiny, tiny part of this vast and uh, wonderful array of galaxies and stars and so on. He's the God of the universe, co-eternal with the Father, creator of that universe in the communion of the Holy Spirit, the mighty God. The prophets of old and particularly Isaiah, the prophet in chapter 9, spoke of him as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. And he is, and he showed this, did Jesus, his divinity by his miracles not the least of which is the raising of Lazarus just prior to his triumphal entry. The people of uh, Jerusalem and Judea, they're all uh, amazed about this, and they come to, to praise him because of this miracle. But prior to that, of course, were many miracles that almost cleared the land, you would think, of any disease and infirmity and epilepsy, and there were exorcisms. He cast out the demons. Jesus showed himself to be the Lord of the wind and the waves by walking on them and stilling them, a Lord of substance by creating out of nothing bread and fish for a multitude of people and turning water into wine in the very first of his miracles in which he glorified himself and set the tone for all the miracles, the miracles of God with the people. Creator God, Truly God of gods. Showed this he did as well in commandeering that donkey and its colt. That's central to this whole uh, Palm Sunday praise here. He's riding on this colt which he knew of and of which he spoke to two disciples that they should get this. And he who is the word of God uh, is true to his word. And yes, they found the donkey there and he commandeers this donkey's colt and sits on it, and though colts don't like to be ridden, we're told, foals of, of, of donkeys, they don't like to be ridden uh, because they're unbroken, they're not used to people, yet Jesus, he is able to sit on this donkey, this donkey is submissive to him. Do you think he knows, beloved, that here is his owner, really, that Jesus who sits on him, is the owner of the donkeys on a thousand hills and in a thousand villages. Here is God on the donkey. 
Amazing, God incarnate on the donkey. Well, he's God our king and he's Messiah our king, and this especially is celebrated here. This blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord is a celebration of Israel in its psalms, as we'll speak of, of the Savior God, the God who's especially the king over Israel, not just in power, but in grace and in mercy. He's called in some of the other parallel passages the Son of God, the covenantal king, the one who would be the king and fellowshipper with this chosen people. So he shows this, and the miracles of his healing too, just to look at them from the point of view not of his being God only, but of his being Messiah, they they show his compassion toward this people. He does this among the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He exercises them of demons. He shows compassion on them and their children. His name is, he shall save his people from their sins, and he proves that by saving them from many other maladies and torments of this life as well. Besides this, the Messiah comes as the wisdom of God and He had outwitted the Pharisees not only, but shown himself to be that wonderful speech of God, which is wise. And that leads to this. This one who is the king of the universe and the Messiah is the very word of God sort of king. In this, we mean that he reveals God. Jesus has something to say and for people to hear in these last days, as Hebrews says. He's the last word of the Father, being the first word, and the clearest word, and the incarnate word, and the profound word of all that God has ever had to say. Jesus, the word. And so the people praise that. He is the word of the prophets, not exactly the same, but he speaks through them and by his spirit they're inspired and so they speak of him, of his sufferings and the glory that would follow. He's the word of all the types and the pictures. He's the word of Jerusalem and the words of all the prophets and the priests and the kings who'll be representatives of this one now coalescing all of those types and bringing them all together to see and to be celebrated and to be heard. Now, specifically, there are three Old Testament words or prophecies being fulfilled at this time. I refer to the well-known one of Zechariah, the prophet. Zechariah chapter 9 and verses 9 and 10, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's what they're doing. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's coming, and he's coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from his Jerusalem, The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The people heard that word. They saw that word. 
They saw the personification of that word of Zechariah bespeaking the manner of his coming. As we'll speak of presently, he comes on this donkey, the, uh, the foal, the, the, the colt of a donkey, uh, a baby donkey, as it were. And then there's Daniel, chapter 9, and verses 24 and 25. Again, we could speak about these prophecies all by themselves in a thousand sermons, but Daniel speaks of those 70 weeks, and it's clear, and people who do not just the math, but who wisely compare Scripture of Scripture, it is clear that the time of the 70th week is upon the people right now. That's why Jesus is going ahead to his demise in Jerusalem, because this will be the time fulfilling Daniel in the 70 weeks of Daniel, the plan of God of the coming of Messiah. At that time, there shall be the cutting off of sin, atonement made for the people, Daniel says in chapter 9 of his prophecy, this all will come to pass in Jesus making atonement for the people. He is as well as Daniel predicts the peace of Israel of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, says Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7. Well, beloved, there's one other passage, not only Daniel and Zechariah and all of the other passages that indirectly speak of that, like Isaiah, but there's Psalm 118. That was our call to worship this, uh, this afternoon. And in our worship service, it often is on a Sunday morning. And I've been thinking usually that this day the Lord has made refers to the Sunday when Jesus rises from the dead and the stone that's become, the, was the rejected of men has become the head of the corner, that's for sure. But there's another aspect to the fulfillment of this in the beginning of that Passion Week. And I find here in Psalm 118 the fulfillment of that, that praise being uttered by the people at this time before he goes to the cross and before he rises from the dead. There's this day set in motion and the clock a ticking on this day, this last week, this moment in redemptive history, which is the day the Lord has made now when the king comes into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. This is the Hallel praise, in fact. Luke 19 has a people that's gathered in Jerusalem, and we're told it could have been up to two million people in Jerusalem at that time, and they're praising God as they would with psalms called Hallel psalms. Now, Hallel is that Hebrew word from which we get the word hallelujah, which means praise God. And these group of psalms, five or six or so, Psalm 118 included in them, was a hallel psalm, praising God and here, praising God the King, the Word, fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. Besides that, all of these words, Daniel's prophecy, the right timing, Zechariah's prophecy, the right manner, and the Psalms, psalmist's prophecy, they all show Jesus is real. 
Here's the word of God being fulfilled, riding on a donkey and receiving the praise of these people of God. Here's something so profound, beloved. In this riding on the donkey, this last week of Jesus' life, the people are met with the word and truth of God. As never before, the poignancy of the week and this day beginning the week should not be lost upon us. There's a word being spoken here from heaven, and it is the articulation of who Jesus is and the right he has to be the Savior. You see, if there was no word from heaven about Jesus, he'd just be another man. But since there is this word that he is and these words being fulfilled, which all together corroborate everything he's been saying and doing, they knew this was the word from heaven. He comes, they say, and they recognize, after all, in the name of the Lord. He's real. He's not just on behalf of himself. He's on behalf of the Father, the Lord of the universe. This one is the one with whom we have to do. How people today miss this. They miss this. They're always saying, yes, God said, just like the devil, fallen for it. There's nothing so clear as this, that Christians can be confirmed in this. There's nothing so clear as you Christians make it out to be. Jesus, after all, he's just this man. He dies maybe for a good cause, but he's just this man. He comes, and like other heroes have come and died for their cause, he might be followed by some of you, but he's not for me. Hath God said this? I don't know. The scientists haven't proven it. But Jesus does prove this on this day, and God proves it through him. He has spoken. Listen, listen. Sinner, listen. This king comes for you and for me. If we would, we would have similar exuberant praise. Praise, oh, they did. The people at that time, their activities, they showed they were almost beside themselves. People were cutting down palm branches, which were symbols of joy and, and even eternal life. They would put palm branches on their graves, we're told, to symbolize eternal life and hope beyond the grave. They were waving them in celebration of this one who was the Messiah, they believed. And those coats, they were casting their coats in front of him. They first put them on the colt so that Jesus wouldn't get dirty, I suppose, and beneath his dignity. But then they, they strewed those overcoats in front of him so that everywhere the donkey would step up to uh, Olivet's Mount and then on the descent would be a stepping on these coats. And I believe this symbolizes something like this, beloved. The people would put their coats in front of Jesus and pick them up. And after he went over them and put them over there again, they were saying, we submit to this one. 
Those coats represent who we are, will submit to him, will even be stepped on by him because he's king, he's a good king, he's Messiah king, we live for him. This is some sort of obeisance and not slavish, but joyous. They were so happy finally to have a king and not Caesar lording it over them, this one, king of the universe, king of Jerusalem, king of their salvation. And so by their activities and by their exuberance and their speech, they were shouting and beside themselves so that the Jews would say, the whole world has gone after them. The whole world. There was a mob, you see, that, that came from Jerusalem up the Mount of Olives to the, uh, to the east, I believe, of the city. And then there was another group that was following Jesus. And so right about the crest of Mount Olives that towered above the mountains of Jerusalem, they, they, were, they met together those after him and those before him, and there was a crescendo of praise. And then they turned around, of course, and they, they escorted him, this king, into Jerusalem. And the Pharisees object to Jesus being so lauded. They shout, Master, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, verse 40, I tell you that if these should keep silence, the stones would immediately cry out. Inanimate objects would be turned to praise if the living themselves would be silent. So all of this, because Jesus went ahead and set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, and not just toward the cross, though that was the, the goal, but even toward the first day, his coronation, as it were, the publication of his identity, finally, as Messiah. Now, this leads to certain of the paradoxes that I wanted to share with you that I have. Maybe this is just me, but I find puzzles here. And... I've yet to figure them out in my short life, and I dare say it's going to take me all eternity to try to figure it out. For example, that donkey. There's the king of the universe on a donkey, and this was no normal way for a king to come in. Zechariah 9 points us back to peculiarity of this Messiah's coming. Your king is coming to you. He's just in having salvation. He's lowly, meek, and humble, riding on a donkey. And we're told that after Solomon, and after the, the kings would be known riding on steeds, riding on a donkey would be considered beneath the dignity of a king. Donkeys were beasts of burdens, White steeds and white horses are symbols of power and glory of a triumphant dictator or something. But Jesus, by this, you see, is revealing he's no normal victor, his is no normal kingship. He is his king of peace and of a peace that is earned and acquired 
and gotten, however you want to say it, not in normal ways, not with fisticuffs, not with plottings, and not with bows or swords or tanks or horses, but with his blood. This is so profoundly different, you see, than what the people would have been used to. There's their understanding of victory and kingship and being pronounced king and maybe Jesus soon to overcome the Caesars was so different than ours. For example, did you know that there was something called a Roman victory? And when a Roman general would overcome in battle at least 5,000 and kill them and gain territory for the Roman Empire, add to the territory of the empire, that Roman general who had caused 5,000 to fall at the edge of the sword and gain territory would be celebrated. And perhaps he'd lead his armies uh, and then the captives, and he'd lead them into captivity. But what he would do then was go straight to the temple in the city, whatever city it is, this Roman general, and he'd offer a sacrifice to the gods, showing that there was some power that he bowed to as well, and so this Roman general would gain the favor of the gods. Well, that's the Roman victory, and then you have Jesus' victory. How different. How, how different. Jesus, after all, when he conquers, he makes alive those conquered and that's the, the, the fame of Jesus in the church. He's conquered us, beloved. He's conquered our sins. And he leads us alive. And yes, he leads captivity captive, and he spoils principalities and powers. But his main conquest is a people out of this world to be in his fellowship and to love him forever and to be blessed of him. And of course, Jesus doesn't go straight to, to heaven to sacrifice to some God besides God. He is God. And even now, as he's riding on this donkey in to show the difference between him and the rest of the Roman generals, he's the lamb. That's another thing I find that you need to ponder here. Did you know at this time, at Passover, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem his last week, there are lambs all over the place. People had to have, and families had to have these lambs, hundreds of thousands of lambs to be sacrificed for the Passover meal, celebration of their deliverance from Egypt. And Jesus comes, and he's the king on a donkey, but he's a lamb king. He's a lamb. He's the lamb who comes and will offer himself on the cross, and there's all these other lambs, and somehow he would draw the people's attention to himself. The Lamb King, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but a Lamb, our Passover. So I ponder this, this king on a donkey, this king who's a lamb, and I ponder also the fact that the Bible seems to be making a strong point here, the fact that Jesus needs the donkey. Not a white horse or a mighty steed, 
But I want to focus just on the fact that he needs the donkey. And that's what he told the disciples. He says, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a coat tied on, a colt tied on which no man has ever sat. And when the owner says, why are you loosing it? You'll say to him, because the Lord has need of it. And that's exactly what the disciples said. The Lord has need of it. Maybe this word that the Lord needs something shouldn't be so unusual to us because the Lord needs, when his humanity, he needs a cup to put the water in. He needs food and he needs sleep and he needs companionship like we all do, though he's alone primarily. But this, this word need here at this time, he's the king. What's the God of the universe, the king of the universe, do needing anything? Beloved, I'll tell you this, if God in his divinity really needed things and people and whatever like we do, he would be no God and he would not be worth worshiping. But here you have this God of paradox, of problem worth pondering. He says, I come down and I need For your sake, I have needs, and I need this donkey to symbolize who I am. One point of view, of course, we could say, well, he has no needs. Of course not. He didn't really need to need. But he really needs here. As he will really need the sustaining help of the Father on the cross and need something to sustain him from perishing everlastingly under the wrath of God. Here's a word, one word all by itself, the Lord has need, which summarizes everything of the humiliation of Christ that there ever was. He humbles himself. He submits to the will of the Father and to the forces even of evil at this time. He's coming, seems like a great coronation time at this point, but Beloved, uh, maybe oddly, you could see this really as a kind of funeral procession before the one has died. There's something false about the coronation, the celebration. But he's humbling himself as Jesus to this whole machine called the machine of the world, the, the unbelief of the world that's propelling him to go all the way to hell for such a sinful people. One other thing, or two. It's striking that this one who's the Lord and the King, he comes, and as it was determined of him, and he's determined to go, resolute in his mind, he comes, and not everyone is prepared to receive him. And he does not prepare everyone to receive him. You think a king who knows the inside and the outside of a man, who knows the thoughts and everything, would would turn everyone to have a heart for him and not just be a superficial sort of praising people. But you see, this crowd here, as we know from the end of the week when there are shouts of, of coronate him, coronate him, turn to crucify him, 
They're, they're ignorant, largely, of what's going on here. They have political ideas. They're thinking Biden or Trump, maybe Jesus now. And they're getting it all wrong. Theirs is a, a carnal view of the kingdom and a victory. And they're not understanding that he comes to make peace with God and then there's the Jews in verse 42. Jesus speaks of them being hardened. And if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the day the Lord has made, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And then he speaks of the fact that they will be destroyed, those Jewish people, Jerusalem representing that people in 70 AD by the Roman hordes. And they will be the people of God as an institution and a nation, no more. But here's the problem in my head, my, maybe mine only. The king, you would think, would not let hard hearts go. He turned them. Not let the ignorant be lost in their ignorance. And why isn't that he can't have a following now? And then he weeps. Verse 41, as he drew near, nearer and nearer the city, he saw the city, and the first thing he did was weep over it. One of the three times, I believe, Jesus is said here to have wept. He weeps. The sovereign one weeps. Can you understand this? Every time I come across a Savior, my Savior, your Savior, weeping, I don't know. He has divine eyes, beloved, divine tear ducts, as it were. A divine peace about himself so that nothing ruffles the feathers of God, speaking as a man. His straight on, and he goes resolute to the cross of all crosses, the death of all deaths, hell itself. And here he weeps over Jerusalem. A divine weeping, though. Let's remember that. Sovereign weeping. You see, it's not here that he's frustrated, not getting what he wants. But I believe, beloved, this is an instance of God himself showing that judgment is his strange work. And what men deserve is being weeped about here, the sin, the ugliness of sin, the detestation that the Savior has and the destruction that it causes, causes him to weep, as it were. And so Jesus is not coming to Jerusalem and announcing to them a hardness and a judgment upon God as some kind of cosmic ogre who heaps Judgments upon sinner for the sake of heaping and dashing to pieces the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. It's simple and pure divine abhorrence of evil. And to show that though God is not the God of human passions, he's the God who has divine and perfect passions. And just want to point out to you, this is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, 
of which the psalmist said, Psalm 48, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in Jerusalem. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in that city, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, Jerusalem, on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as a refuge. To that city, Jesus comes and weeps over it because they've rejected him. She's no longer the city of the great king. She should have been for praise. She now abhors Messiah and the God he represents in the flesh. He weeps. And the mystery is that he doesn't conquer their hearts and win them over as if God needs the numbers. Every single individual in this world to go to heaven to have the most sort of praise. That's not our God. According to his sovereign good pleasure, he leaves some in their, in their just deserts, in their hardness. So I ponder that. You too? You're pondering. And that this word of God would be contradicted and then crucified, this king denied. But there's one other thing, and I want to leave us with that leading into this final point. Jesus comes and the prophet says, Blessed is he who comes to you, Jerusalem. Thy king cometh unto you. And all these sinners around and these ignorant ones and these hard in their hearts, blind leading the blind. Still he goes, still he goes. Beyond the first day, to the next, the next, the next, to the garden, as you heard this morning, to the cross. Now, why does he do that? Why does he do that? Comes to those people anyway. I say to you in the name of God, because on Palm Sunday is revealed the God of mercy. He's just and having salvation because he loves us. And his love is not conditioned upon our knowledge of him, our acceptance of him. It is this sovereign king love whereby he loves us, dies for us, rises again for us, pours out his spirit so that we become his people and we know his peace. Well, beloved, that's my final point, but before that, I want to remind you that there be, may be none of us here that says, you know, I wouldn't be so ignorant of Jesus. My praise would have gone beneath the surface. I would have followed Jesus all the way to the cross and not run away. None of us can say that. Because you were there in the crowd, and so was I. The nature, even, of the people of God's good pleasure still remains the same as Adam, who deny what God says, who compromise, who are distracted by one distraction and then ten and then a thousand besides. Anything rather than 
simply having the Word of God and the promises of God dwell in us and be our hope and be our life and be our everything for us. More. Don't think for a minute that you're beyond the Pharisees who are telling the crowd or telling Jesus, shush them, shush them. See those Pharisees? They were afraid of a a Roman reaction to this world going after Jesus. They were afraid of that Jesus would upset the status quo and the the normal relationships that this Jewish nations had and all but sovereign within this kingdom of Rome. They were afraid to upset this peace, which was no peace that they had, submitting to Rome and its rule and its laws rather than to God and his laws. They represent us all. We have no need for Jesus. We just won't say it, will we? But we say it every time. Our Christianity is all about everything but Good Friday. It might even be Easter. Ours is an Easter Christianity, but without the cross. Our Jesus, sadly, is practically for us a convenient Jesus. But when it becomes and needs to be a cross Jesus, we're not there. We're not there. We miss, as does the people, the donkey, and the significance of that. We miss the significance of this word being denied, but spoken loudly and clearly. When it comes to our bleeding, we justify ourselves in our unbelief. But thanks be to God, he does the things that make for peace. Isn't that amazing? When Jesus upbraids the the leaders of the Jews and Jerusalem, You had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The things that make for your peace. What was Jesus talking about? Well, the cross. Well, this God with them. Well, this word of God being fulfilled and the prophecy now come to pass incarnate and in this son soon to be bleeding and dying for sinners. Oh, yes, that's the things that make for peace. The activity, the words of the word and everything that will lead up to his crucifixion, the rejection of the world, Pilate not only, but also the Jewish world, religious and not, they will say no to Jesus, no to this word of God, no to this lamb, no to this donkey-riding king. And there will be no peace for such who reject Jesus today. But there is peace for you, beloved, because Jesus goes anyway to the cross. In wonder of wonders, he rises again on that first Lord's day after his demise, and he rises to receive the Spirit and to pour him out. So we have the Spirit now. A nature, to be sure, an old man that is ignorant of these things, a propensity to deny him and even to self-justify ourselves and 
to be content with a false peace. Normal things we like, don't we? Normal things. A Christianity that doesn't offend people. That's what we like. We don't follow Jesus all the way to the cross. Just stop there. Maybe on Palm Sunday, that's the kind of Christianity we have. But beloved, don't stop there. Jesus said, I'm going all the way. I go ahead. I'm setting my face to die for sinners, and I'm going to win over them. Now, you follow Jesus, beloved. Follow him. And he will be with you because the fact that he makes peace and does the things that make for peace means that you're joined to God again. That's what that means. Reconciled. God is our God. Palm Sunday praise. Remember the praise, but the ponderings and the peace. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us with your peace. And bless us, Lord, to ponder anew what you've done and what you can do and shall do, all for the sake of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel, the good news, the lamb on a donkey, the lamb crucified our Passover, the king of the universe. So as we hear the prophet, and we truly hear that prophet in New Testament light, fear not, O daughter of Zion. Your king comes unto you. Amen.